He's from the hard-hitting world of ice hockey. She's from the red carpets of Tinseltown. Together, they are two of the leading executive producers in Hollywood. Responsible for mega hits like Hoosiers, Sudden Death, and the Oscar-winning Ray. A true sports and entertainment power couple. Meet Karen and Howard Baldwin. This is Pucks and Paparazzi with your host, Stephen Maggi. Howard Baldwin has owned teams in the National Hockey League and World Hockey Association. Karen Baldwin has been an actor and TV reporter. This is a real dynamic duo. Now, let's drop the puck and turn the lights. Here's the host of Pucks and Paparazzi, Stephen Maggi. We're back with Pucks and Paparazzi, and as you know, of course, Howard Baldwin is famous for being the owner of the Hartford Whalers, who no longer exist, and yet are still very popular back there. I, I find it fascinating. I remember when the Whalers were in, and actually, the Whalers were popular because nobody had ever played in Hartford before. Was that kind of a unique challenge, but also a possibility for you when you think about it, Howard? It was a way to really help infuse the interest in the WHA at the time. Yeah, I mean, the the history, uh, Steve, on the Whalers is, remember, we started in Boston. And we played the first year in Boston, and, and we had a hell of a year. We won everything. Uh, and we thought, okay, um, here we are in Boston. We're competing with the Celtics, the Bruins, the Braves, the Patriots, everybody. Maybe the this, this second year logically should be better. Well, it wasn't better. It slipped in the wrong direction. The bloom was off the rose, as they say. So we moved the team to Hartford. And um, the minute we got to Hartford, I must say, the first couple of months, I was apprehensive. But then and when the Civic Center opened and things started to happen, it just thus began a real love affair between the city and the community and the team. And we were, a, you know, we were we were the only show in town. And we were the first time the major leagues, even though the WHA people scoffed at it, it was really major league. And it was the first real major league identity that Hartford had. And it, the community and the city and the state embraced it like uh, no other team has been embraced as far as I'm concerned. Well, the Bruins were a tough act to follow because they had such history, one of the original six, and they had some great teams. And it's one of those situations where you start out, you win the division. kind of reminded me a bit of in the AFL when the Dallas Texans won the AFL championship but Lamar Hunt knew that this isn't going to work here because we can't compete with the Cowboys. Do you kind of wish, although I, I guess they didn't really have the facilities to do it, in a in a fantasy world, Howard, do you wish that the Whalers had started in Hartford? Not really, no. Um, because I think the fact that when we came to Hartford, we came with a, a persona of a championship, which made for and a, a, a two years or a year and a half, we announced it the middle of the second year. So we had a year and a half of very successful operation in the WHA. The league in the second year added new players. So there was no no great chore to sell the league. When we, first year in Boston, we were selling the league, selling a place to play, selling everything. But the second year when we actually went to Hartford, the people there said, hey, these guys are for real. The corporate community said that. The media said that. 
then it was up to us to perform right. Well, and also, what do you really, in Boston, after that kind of first year, what do you do for an encore? Exactly. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. a lot of people, I think, we see that with expansion teams. The first couple of seasons, they can get away with being average because it's something new and different. Um, but then if they don't start winning and have a, a new reason for people come to the coming to the games other than it's something different and new, um, that, that's when you sort of test the market more. I think initially people are, are thrilled just for some new experience. Um, but after the first year or two, then you've got to prove yourself on the ice, I think, a lot more. Well, Karen, do you remember the atmosphere there? I mean, did that strike you? Because it is kind of fun when you're the only game in town and the locals kind of feel like you're theirs. Yeah, and it was the only game in town and the fans were super loyal. It was the thing to do. It was a very family-oriented environment. There was a lot of positive feeling because it made the city, it gave the city an identity. And I think partially why they're still as popular is it's almost like a cult following because people who lived it remembered how great it was. People who then told their children about how great it was, it sort of is almost like this mythical team that these kids still sort of hold out there and revere. And I think that's how you get something with a cult following like the Whalers. Merchandise is a big thing when you, you know, across the board in sports, but especially when you're starting a new franchise in a new area and so forth. Your logo is still being talked about there. This is a question for both of you, but how did that come to being? And it must have been kind of exciting. Who helped design it? The logo that is so popular is the one that we created through Peter Good and Bill Barnes from our office, who was absolutely instrumental in everything good that happened with the whalers from day one and they created bill created it through peter who was peter's genius when we got into the nhl which would of course have been 79 80 and you are 100 percent right that logo on merchandise now still is like ninth or ten best-selling merchandise in the National Hockey League, and we haven't played in Hartford since 99. And Peter Good, we stay in touch with Peter Good. He actually just designed another logo for us for, for another company, and um, he was the first one really to use that negative space where the W and the H, you know, and I think that's what was so memorable about it. People looked at it. They saw the W and they saw the whale tail, but then when you look closely, the negative space in the middle is an H for Hartford. How important are things like uh, picking the colors and so forth? Because merchandising is a big part of it. More, but more important than merchandising, this is your identity. And when you come up and starting something brand new, I imagine it's pretty important. Things that seem like uh, like small things, but things like colors and so forth, and design, and the way the jerseys look, it got to be important. Very important. And we got early on. We were really the first team to ever have our own store. And we recognize right off the bat that the one thing you have that has infinity attached to it is merchandise. Not that with tickets or sponsorships. With with merchandise, you can sell, 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 as long as people buy. So when we were in Boston, we recognized, okay, well, so many teams have red, white, and blue. And in Boston, you couldn't do black and yellow because that was the Bruins. Um, but we could do green, which was synonymous with greatness because of the Celtics. And, and it's a very user-friendly 
color. I think Karen can elaborate on that. proven colors. There are certain colors that are pro- proven user-friendly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. The blue and the green combination, when they tested it, it was very sort of uh, a reassuring, soothing yeah. combination. Um, a lot of the teams went to the third jersey specifically for the reason of, you know, being able to sell a third jersey and make some extra money. And for a while there, if you notice, teams all of a sudden, everybody was black and silver and red because those are those the colors that seem to have the most appeal for a while. Um, and if you notice now, the trend is more odd color combinations or retro going back to the original colors. Um, but all of that definitely plays into um, a buyer psychology and, and how much merchandise you sell. It's important because it's your identity, as you said. How involved were the two of you? I know you you were involved with the beginning of the San Jose Sharks, and I'm thinking blue and green. And that teal color has been phenomenal for them, and their logo is a big deal. It's one of the favorites in the NHL. Were you involved in that as well? We were obviously involved in the Sharks being there. As you know, we were technically the first owners. But in fairness to the people that ended up, you know, swapping out with us, George Gund and and all, they should they take full credit for the logo and the color scheme. We we had nothing to do with that, and when we saw it, we applauded it, uh, and it's all to their credit. When we originally were looking there and and talking to San Jose about putting the team there, believe it or not, we wanted to call the team the Quakes. Really? And thank goodness, yeah, thank goodness we didn't because it was shortly thereafter. You remember that they had the big earthquake there, and so that. Of oh, course, yeah. was off the table after that. And people would have associated it with a soccer team, too. The Sharks was really unique. Yeah. Yeah, no, Sharks. Originally, when I heard the Sharks, for me personally, I said, wait a minute, there ain't no Sharks in San Jose. Water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then I said, okay, it works. And the Quakes would have, you know, just a fun story for you. So the mayor there at the time, Tom McHenry, who went on to run for governor, a great guy. The year after the deal was done, and it, we to this day we've remained friends. And he said, "You know, we got a there's a baseball World Series game in San Fran, San Francisco, Oakland. Would you and Karen like to come up and sit in our boxes as a guest? Which is a nice invitation, but it was the night of our anniversary. So I said, someone had to be reminded of that. That's good. <laughs> and so. And so we said, we just can't, we're going to stay in L.A. and we're going to go out to dinner and and celebrate our anniversary. Well, of course, we didn't go out to dinner. We sat in front of the TV and watched that game we were meant to be at. And thank God we weren't there because that was, that was the night of the horrible earthquake in the Bay. We felt it even in L.A., but it was, you probably remember the earthquake, but it was, it was a giant one. Oh, I remember that. In fact, it was funny because I was supposed to go to that game, too. I had Oakland A's season tickets oh, really? at the time. And that was over a candlestick. And somebody go, nah, I'm just going to stay home and watch it. That's right. <laughs> wow. But once again, your romance has helped you guys. They once again kept you out of going there because that wouldn't have been fun. It wouldn't Our have been romance fun. saved a life. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Okay, you know, Steve, we, we remember the score of every single game, but, you know, October 17th, occasionally the anniversary has to be, I have, I have to put a reminder, we should have played a game on October 17th that he remembers. So. <laughs> well, before we leave this subject in today's show, I want to ask you about a project, Slim and None, and... 
this talks about that first year of the New England Whalers, you know, before even before Hartford. So kind of tell us what that was, because that was another collaboration with David Kelly. Yes, that's correct. And an ongoing one. Process, yeah, it's 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 an ongoing one. We are developing that now to be told as a limited series. We have a wonderful writer, Eric Simonson, who's done extraordinary work. He wrote the the play Lombardi and another play uh, Bird, and I think it's Bird and Magic, right, Karen? And he's just an award-winning writer. Um, David, Karen, and I will be producing it, and uh, it's a story that should be told because it's one of those great triumph of the human spirit stories where everybody that came onto that team the first year had a point to prove and had great risk. We actually got the scrapbook from the first year, which is about 50 years old, and we duplicated it. And in reading through the articles, I said, how the heck did we do it? Because there's a press thing with me and Jack Kelly in April of 1972, four months from opening day, and the media saying, well, Howard, and well, Jack, you have no players. You have no place to play. Uh, you don't know whether your contract would be legal. How are you gonna? How are you gonna do it? And we said, Oh, don't worry about a thing. It'll all be fine. You know. I mean, it was pretty incredible. You know, I had an interesting conversation with a guy named Johnny Greco, who was the uh, worked at the time for the Vegas Golden Knights. He's now going to be with the Seattle Kraken. But, you know, he was part of that whole thing when they were developing it. And I was telling him a little about what you two had done with the Whalers. And he was saying, well, he goes, that's way tougher. Because as tough as it was to build an expansion team and you're in a new city and all that stuff, bottom line was they were a part of the NHL. You weren't just selling a new team. You were selling a new league. And he was saying the, the, the issues with that were incredible because it doesn't matter. You can sell your team, but if the league you're playing in isn't respected – you're in a losing prospect. So was there always that kind of challenge? I mean, I guess it's both exciting and scary at the same time. It was every year, and we were in WHA seven years, and I always tell people it was like Russian roulette in June because you never really knew. You knew, we knew we would survive. We were extremely well financed, whether we were in Boston or Hartford. But a lot of the other teams we're just like holding together a bale of hay with dental floss. I mean, it was really, really hard. And so you never had the stability that you would hope to have. So it was, it was an adventure from year one right through the merger. You know, we talk about new leagues, and maybe that, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking for anybody who's starting a new league, Boy, if you're not well-financed, you have issues. And that maybe is why the AFL did as well as they did, because they had really rich guys, at least in some of those, that were willing to put their money up. And uh, it's it's tough. You, you just can't handle the stability of uh, without having enough teams where they know they're going to be around a little while. Sure. And that's why to this day in the leagues you have revenue sharing. because Because you know that Kansas City can't compete with New York or Pittsburgh can't compete with New York. And and the leagues now are smart enough to realize we're only as strong as our weakest link. So the less weak links we have, the better. So you have revenue sharing, you have cooperation, uh, because it doesn't do any good to have a team of six or eight members. You want to have a strong league, and the strong leagues really are the ones that thrive. And all the leagues now pretty much, you know, 
are strong from top to bottom. You'll always maybe one year have a weak link that'll have a problem. But bottom line, they're pretty strong from top to bottom. Well, and there are also cases, though, when you look at teams and just they have, you know, cash has been thrown in, just throwing money at something doesn't always make a difference either. Do you know what I mean? You have to have the right combination of proper funding, but also people who know how to run it. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, you can see there's some franchises even in the NFL, like the Washington football team comes to mind where you've got, you're throwing money, you're throwing money, you're signing people, and they just can't get out of that doldrum. That's that's right. Um, It's a tough business. Most businesses, I'm not saying there aren't other businesses that are hard, but most other businesses, you don't wake up every morning and see social media or the TV or the newspaper tell what a what a bum you are for not winning or, you know, that kind of a thing. Your whole business life is right out there in front of the public so that it puts that much more pressure on you. And the hardest thing is not making decisions, you know, based on that. you got to make decisions on based what you think is right and wrong. Last question is... The two of you must be the type that you can deal with risk. I mean, you really can because you're in sports and then you decide to get into the media with TV and, and film and so forth. And that's the same thing there, too. You, you can do everything right. And if a film bombs, you got to move on to the next one. And, and I, I, I would imagine there's that same, uh, you know, that same thing of uh, it's not quite as easy as it goes. You can't just forget about those kind of things. Yeah, that's right. And I think you put your heart and soul into something and your intention from day one is to make something good, you know, not to make something lousy. Um, and you do the best you can. But um, I, I think the tough thing is when you put a lot of time and energy into something and something doesn't quite pan out because it has a weird release date or the marketing thing is different or the, you know, I mean, it's a little more out of your control. Whereas with the team, at least you have the whole season. With a film, you have opening weekend, and it's either good or not good. With a team, you can adjust during the year, I think. Yeah, that's very well put. It's absolutely correct. With a team, you have continuity. So you, you, can, you can have a, a bad um, season, and you know you're going to be back next year. And you can do everything you can to rectify it. With a film... As Karen said, we know pretty much when that if that film is released, which most of them are on a Friday, you're going to know by Friday night, 10 p.m. PST, whether there's life after Friday or not. When you're, scary thing. when you're putting a film together and the concept might be great and the script might be great, have you gotten to a point where you get through it and you're filming and you're going... This just isn't working under the current guidelines. Is and I imagine that's something you got to jump on because you don't want to just say, "Well, I'm going to play the hands I was dealt." If you really don't think it's going to be accepted, yeah, it's tough. I mean, that's why you know you watch the dailies, you see things that are shot, you anticipate. Um, if you notice problems, you anticipate and you try to adjust. Um, but hopefully, you know that adjustment has been done before you start rolling cameras because it gets pricey if it has to be done during or after. There's, there's one, only one film we've made that we felt, I know I felt, and I think Karen agreed, we had real trepidation, and that was a movie called The Patriot. Not the Mel Gibson one, unfortunately, but the one with Steven Seagal. And it was like the first week of filming, and he was not well, so he decided to stay in his room. 
And so they went out and took the opening shots. And when they sent the dailies down to California, we sat in front of the monitor to look at the dailies. That's the previous day's filming. And there was a road, a lonely road in the Montana. And I kept looking and I kept looking and Karen kept looking. And, you know, there's a great scene in Lawrence of Arabia when Omar Sharif, if you remember, comes, <laughs> comes up to the well, <laughs> which was just brilliant. I said, maybe this is going to be brilliant. <laughs> After a half an hour, I realized, no, it's not brilliant. <laughs> It's just a road. And I said, that's it. <laughs> I'm checking out of this one. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I, it's one of those things where you got you have to make that decision once you realize it. you got to do it right then because you, you don't want to throw good money after bad. And if you see something where the, tra- the trajectory is the wrong direction, I imagine it's particularly hard to change that trajectory. Well, the fairness to the movie and Stephen, it made money. Yeah. So, uh, well, it's also interesting because I think, again, people feel, well, maybe we can make up for that. The script isn't so good, but we have a couple big stars. So people come see it because of the stars. They won't really care if the script isn't that good. But, you know, it's, people really do care if the script is good. <laughs> sure, it's fun to see your favorite actors. But if they're in something bad, it, you know, I think that's part of the problem with actors doing their vanity movies is people often want to appease the actor and, and let them do their projects that they've dreamt of doing. And sometimes those projects aren't particularly commercial. So the actor can get it made because of who he or she is, but the audience just isn't really there. Fascinating stuff. Look forward to talking with you two again. We'll see you next week. On the next episode of Pucks and Paparazzi, Howard and Karen present a new project, that is near and dear to Howard's heart as he actually lived it. Rebel Leagues is an hour-long series that explores the wild and hilarious ride that was the American Basketball Association. Howard had teams that challenged the establishment in the 1970s, and the founders of those leagues, Gary Davidson and Dennis Murphy, have been lifelong friends of Howard's. That's next time on Pucks and Paparazzi. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Maggi. You've been listening to Pucks and Paparazzi. Join us next time for a fun, unique look at the worlds of sports and entertainment. Thanks for listening.